Turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. Most of you know this, but we are coming through the book of John, 1 John, together. So the place we land today is 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10. Verses 4 through 10. I want to I want to invite you to pray with me in just a moment. I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and read this and then I want to say a few things to you. 1 John chapter 3, start to verse 4. I'm going to go to verse 10. Okay, read it with me. <clears throat> Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So I'm about to pray for our time uh, over the next hour in God's word together. And I want to invite you to pray with me. And not just in this moment to pray, but the whole time that we're hovering over God's word and we're asking God to show himself, to just show us his glory. That you would be throwing up little prayers to God, asking Him for help the whole way the whole way along. Help for me to preach God's word. Help for us all to understand. Help for us to see the glory of Christ. Help that God would show us our hearts. Do you, do you believe? You know, I just I read this morning in Second Corinthians chapter four. In verse four, it says that the God of this world, little G God, Satan, the God of this world, Satan. Is blinding the eyes of the unbelievers. That's verse 4. Verse 6 it says. That the God of light. The one true God. Is shining like the sun. Shining the light of the glory of Christ. In the people's hearts. And right in the middle of verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 5. It says we preach Christ. So right in the midst of this cosmic thing going on. That you can't see. Right now what you see is a man reading God's word. And you see us coming together to, to hear the preaching of God's word. But what I'm telling you is going on that you can't see. Is the God of this age, the little G God Satan, is blinding the eyes of unbelievers. And the God of light is shining like the sun. So that people might see the glory of Christ. You think we should pray? Do you think that there may be, as we read this passage and you think about what's there. That there may be false converts in the room today. That God could shine the light of the glory of Christ in their souls. And they're false converts no more. 
think God can do that? And do you think God can comfort the souls of the saints that are in this room right now? I believe He can. So pray with me and please pray throughout this time. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we get the privilege. What a privilege, Lord, to get to read Your Word. God, in our own strength, with our own ears, our own eyes, we can't understand. But Lord, we believe you that you have the power to open our eyes. And I pray, God, you would do it this morning. God, I know there's so many people in this room that you... They have trouble even sleeping at night, God, thinking about people that are among us that may be false converts. And God, I pray that you would help, God, that you would awaken the souls of those who feel assurance, God, that they should not have it. And God, I pray in the same way, God, because you're sovereign, because you can do this. That you would at the exact same moment, God, that you would comfort the souls of the saints, God. You'd give assurance to those to whom you desire to have it. God, please help us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so let me kind of say a few things, just um, a couple of things to kind of get us ready for digging into this passage. It's kind of just some technical things, okay? So... A lot of you might have realized that I just read from the ESV, and normally uh, you guys hear me reading from the New King James. Uh, I don't have any particular uh, clinging to that version, just the Bible that I've had for a long time, and I love it, and it's hard for me to get rid of it. But this, the ESV does a lot better job of translating this passage, so that's why you just heard me read from the ESV. But here, here's something I want to show you, okay? I want to read this to you. In the New King James, I want to show you what I'm talking about here. And so this will, this will help deal with some things from the front end. Okay, so we're just talking some technical things here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, that's one of the verses I read. I want, I want to read the second half of verse 6. And listen to it in the New King James. Listen. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Now the way it says it here in the ESV is no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, I want you to think about this. E even in the New King James, even if this is where, where you're reading, it says in verse 6, just listen to it, listen. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Listen to chapter 2, verse 1. Same writer. Second part of verse 1. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here you got the same writer. He's not an idiot, right? He's not going to make a mistake like this, like just a few verses later. Right here he says, if anyone sins, you don't know him, you haven't seen him. And then in, in chapter 2, verse 1, just before that, he said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So at the very beginning, you know, something's going on here. Something's happening. And one thing, I just want to put this before you quickly at the beginning, is that these are different tenses 
that are in these words right here, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1 is an errorless tense, and then there's another tense, a present tense, all through the section that we're in. And therefore, the ESV does a good job of pulling that out by not just saying, whoever sins has neither seen him or known him, but he, whoever keeps on sinning or whoever continues in sin, we're talking about a lifestyle of sin here, okay? So I want to tell you that. And 1 John, this letter is full, is full of this idea of, of if you continue, we've seen this all the way through the letter, right? If you continue on in sin, by this you know that you know him, that you keep his commandments. If you continue on in sin, you're not of God. And yet this letter is also full of what, what else? Are Christians perfect? Is this teaching perfectionism that we don't sin after we say? Absolutely not. We see many other verses that say just the opposite. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so here's what I want to say about that. This letter doesn't teach perfectionism, no sin after you're saved, and it also doesn't teach cheap grace. Now, in saying that, do not let this blunt the sword. I mean, listen to this verse. Don't let the sword be blunted by thinking, well, here's what it might not mean. I mean, listen to what I just read, even in the ESV. It says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Do not let that sword be blunted. Okay, so I'm reading from the ESV here. Also, I want to tell you this. If you have a study guide out there, uh, we're going to look at this passage under four headings. And you see those four headings on your study guide? The four headings are, number one, the gravity of sin, the seriousness of sin. Number two, the coming of Christ. Number three, the Christian's relationship with sin. And number four, a warning or an application. And I want to explain where I'm getting that from because I didn't like come up with that and then go find this passage. Okay, I'm just studying the passage and this is what comes out. This is what I'm asking God. God, help me to just say what your word says. I have nothing creative to say to your people. Say what you say in your word, God. So let me tell you where I get those four headings from in this passage and then we'll dive into it. Okay. Now, the context, this, our passage today, verse 4 through 10 is springing out of the section that we looked at last week, especially verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Okay. So you got the end in view. You got somebody that's hoping in Him that they are a child of God and that Christ is going to return and that when He appears and when He returns, they're going to be like Him. They're going to be with Him forever. They're a child of God. And those who hope in Him like that, those who have that solid hope, what do they do? They purify themselves. They purify themselves. Now, in a wrong fashion, no, but no doubt, somebody will say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, I, you know, i got this friend, and he's got this hope, he's, got, he's a Christian, but he doesn't purify himself. And this is when you got to begin to weigh your experience against God's Word. God's Word is God's Word. Those who have this hope purify themselves just as He is pure. And so what's going to happen in response to a, a wrong idea like that, what's going to flow out of this is our section today. And our section today is going to dig deeper into that thought that those who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. Except we're actually going to get the negative side of that. Those who have this hope, so the opposite of they purify themselves will be what? They don't continue on in sin. 
And so we get this emphasis throughout this passage of continuing on in sin. The Christian's relationship with sin. So, so, so the, the, John is going to drive home the point. Like he's done over and over and over again. That something happens in the life of a Christian that makes them stand out from the world. It makes them different. This really happens in the life of a Christian. Every Christian. And so this is going to prepare the original readers of this letter from John. It's going to prepare them because what are they seeing in their church? They're seeing Antichrist come and deceive people and lead people astray. They're seeing false brethren lead the church. And so this is going to help them to learn to discern these sort of things. That there is a true and false conversion. Now let me show you these, these, uh, where these four headings come from. They're on your sheet. These four headings, okay? In this passage, we pretty much have two sections with the same four points. Okay? Let me tell you what I mean. Look at verse 4 through 7. You see it? Verse 4 through 7 is a section and it has four points. And it's those four headings on your sheet that I just mentioned. And then your second section is verse 8 through 10. And it also has those same four points recapped but, in a, but with a little different emphasis. Okay? And so we're going to see that. I want you to see these two sections. Verse 4 through 7 and verse 8 through 10. See them like two paragraphs. Two paragraphs with the same four headings, the same four points with a little bit different emphasis. So just, I want your eyes on the text because I want you to see this, okay? I want you to see this and then we're just going to dive into those four headings. Listen to verse 4 and verse 8. A is going to be your first heading. Listen. This is the gravity of sin, the seriousness of sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now look down at verse 8. This is still that, that first heading, that first point, the gravity of sin in that second paragraph. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, that's the same phrase, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So this is what we see. The gravity of sin at the beginning of both paragraphs. He who makes a practice of sin, this is lawlessness. And he who makes a practice of sin is of the devil. Okay, what about that second heading? Look at verse 5. This is Christ coming. Christ has come for sinners. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And to look at the second half of verse 8. 8b. The reason the Son of God appeared. Same word appeared. He appeared to take away sins. And right here he appeared. It was to destroy the works of the devil. So the coming of Christ. He has appeared to take away sin. He has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Third heading is found. Right here in verse 6. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This is the Christian's relationship with sin. Now look down at verse 9. Same thing, the Christian's relationship with sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You hear the same phrase? For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So you see the third point there in the first and the second paragraph. Let me show you the last one. Verse 7. This is the warning. 
This is the, the warning or the, the, the takeaway. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So what does he say? He says, let no one deceive you. And then look down in verse 10. By this it is evident, or it is, it is, uh, that is obvious, the NAS says. So, so think about those two things together. Let no one deceive you. It's obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So these things are going together. And then it says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whereas in verse 7 it said, those who practice righteousness are righteous. Same phrase. So I want you to see this, that you have, you have two sections here. Two paragraphs, if you can think of it that way, with the same four points. So the way that we're going to go after this this morning is we're going to walk through those four headings together, looking at both paragraphs in each one, okay? Everybody with me? Alright, so let's start off with the gravity of sin. This is found in verse 4 and the first part of verse 8, the gravity of sin. I'm talking about taking sin seriously. Let's read verse 4 one more time. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices, here's the word, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin just got defined for us as lawlessness, which should add some weight to what you think about sin. It should add some gravity, some seriousness to the way you think about us as sinners standing before a holy God. It is lawlessness. Now there's no doubt there's a worldwide plan, a satanic plan to diminish and make sin seem like no big deal. It's all over the place. To there's a plan in place to desensitize us all to sin. Satan wants you to think that sin is not a big deal. That it's just a struggle. It's just a little problem. There will always be temptation to make light of sin. And right here he says sin is lawlessness. Now this making light of sin, it happens in many ways. It happens, it happens through the twisting of scriptures. For example, the, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Almost every time that verse gets quoted in our culture, it is meant to diminish the seriousness of sin. Think about it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, all sin, no problem. No problem. But that's not what that verse was meant to do. It's not what it was meant to do. Or just start quoting, listen... Anything, anything that makes sin seem more excusable. This is the plan of the devil. This is the plan of the evil one to diminish the seriousness of sin. But listen, it is a big deal. So anything that makes it seem excusable rather than sin is that thing that arouses the wrath of Almighty God. Sin is that thing that, that every holy creature should, it should make them sick to their stomach to the point of puking when they think about sin. Anything that makes it seem less than that is of the evil one. And so what we see right here, it says sin is lawlessness. This means sin. It puts you before God. Sin is rebellion against God's law. Sin is rebellion against the lawgiver. Sin is lawlessness. It's an attitude of defiance against your king. It's an attitude of defiance against your creator. It's not just a mistake. You didn't just make a little mistake. When you sin, but it's defiance against him. It's living your life as if there is no law, as if there is no lawgiver. Because it's lawlessness. 
You say you believe the Bible is God's word. You say you believe that the Bible is God's law. And yet your very existence says, hey, there's really no law. There's really no word. There's really, I live to the beat of my own drum. It's lawlessness. It's wicked. And this definition of sin, it awakens us to this. That sin is not just about causing harm to my fellow man. It's not just about that. This puts me before God against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Sin is lawlessness. It's broken commands. It's disobedience. It's defiance to the King of glory. Sin's a big deal. And every person who lives lawlessly, according to this verse, every person who lives lawlessly, one day they will hear the voice of Jesus say this to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And although when they were on earth, they didn't obey His commands on earth. There was no heart to obey the law of God on this earth. There was nothing there. But they'll obey that command. They will depart from Him. The ones that practice lawlessness, they will depart from Him to the only other option, which is the lake of fire, where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look at verse 8. It adds another layer. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So did you know that, that by default, you not only are guilty before God as lawless, but you also are considered a child of the devil by default. This says, of the devil. It's referring to, look at verse 10. By this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So when it says, those who continue on in sin are of the devil, he's talking about being children of Satan. Children of the devil. Offspring of the evil one. Now how does that affect your view of the gravity of sin? How does that affect you when you think about the seriousness of sin. When you continue in sin, you display two things about yourself. When you continue in sin, you display that you are in direct defiance against the creator of the universe. That's lawlessness. And you also show yourself to be in the family of Satan. You'll be cast with him into eternal torment. This is God's word. Sin is lawlessness shows us that sin is not just harmful to ourselves, but is an offense to the lawgiver and when it says those who practice sin are categorized as of the devil, it shows that sin aligns us with Satan. It aligns us with the one who has always, from the beginning, been against God. So listen to me. If you're here and you practice lawlessness, you practice sin. I want you to hear these words from Jesus as if personally addressed to you, okay? Listen to them. John 8, 42. <laughs> Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. Did you hear that? If God were your father, not Satan your father, but if God were your father, you would love me. You are of, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. That's lawless. 
Because there is no truth in them that's lawless. Whoever is of God, not of the devil, but whoever is of God, hears the words of God. That's the opposite of lawless. You hear the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, the reason you don't hear the words of God, is that you are not of God. You are lawless. You are of the devil. This is serious. This is not a joke. This is the gravity of sin. But if you're one who used to continue in sin, but you've since been converted, listen to me, I know there's many people in the room like this, that you once continued in sin, but you have since been converted. That's you. I want you to think about this and be encouraged by it. That one time, God's word towards you was this. You are of your father, the devil. But now, you are of your father, the devil. But now he addresses you like this. Matthew 25, 34. Come, you blessed of my father. Not a father of the devil. Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you stand up on your toes and you cry out to God. Behold, what manner of love the father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. But whoever you are, whether you are true convert or false convert, continuing in sin or not. I want you to feel the gravity of sin from those two truths. Sin is lawlessness. And whoever practices sin is a child of the devil. Now let's go to that second heading. The coming of Christ. <clears throat> coming of Christ. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared... He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sins. It says Jesus appeared. That's in verse 5 and in verse 8. Both paragraphs here. Verse 5 and verse 8. Jesus appeared. This word means that, that, that He was made manifest or, or to be made visible what was hidden or unknown. It's not to be made visible what did not exist, but to make visible that which is hidden. Or that which is unknown. So yes, Jesus was born into this world. He came into this world like me and you. But His existence did not begin there like ours did at our birth. But He is the eternal Son of God before whom angels tremble and bow down. He appeared. He came in the flesh. He came as a man into this world. You think about that. You are lawless. We are lawless. We are of the devil. Is there any hope for people like us? Yes, because Jesus has appeared. The Son of God has come and we're going to find out in just a minute. He came to take away sins, your lawless sins, and He came to destroy your father, the devil. That's good news. So right off the bat, let me mention this. This should enter into your mind because of the context that we're seeing here, okay? Jesus came, we're going to get there, to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. He came to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. So in context, here's something that we should be thinking. It does not make sense when somebody claims to be a child of God, and yet they continue in sin and under the sway of the devil. Now you remember earlier I told you, I'm not talking about perfection, John's not, but don't let that blunt the sword. This is serious. But here's what I want to do. Before we go that direction, I want to just linger for a minute over these two truths in verse 
5 and, 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 and verse 8 B. I just want to kind of linger over this for just a minute, okay? Why did Jesus appear? Why did that verse say Jesus appeared? It says here, in order to take away sins. In Him there is no sin. In order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. So the sinless one came to take away sins. What does that remind you of? The sinless one came to take away sins. Makes me think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So when He came to take away our sin, where did He take the sin away to? Where did He take the sin? He took, He became sin for us. He took the sin onto Himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Christ Jesus has taken our lawless deeds onto Himself at the cross. This is what the cross was all about. Our sins were not just swept under the rug, right? They, when it says that He came to take away sins, it, the sins weren't just obliterated into nothingness. It wasn't that, right? That wouldn't be right for the justice and righteousness and holiness of God who must punish sin because He is a righteous judge. It wouldn't be right to just obliterate into nothingness. So what happened? It got taken away. Christ took the sin onto His own body on that tree at the cross. Where did He take our sins? Listen to Micah 7, 19. Thinking about where did He take? He says He came to take away our sins. Where did He take our sins? Micah 7, 19 says this. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I love it. That just said God stomped our iniquities under His feet. Now let's be clear. The whole of Scripture, what does that mean? That means our sin was placed onto Jesus and He was stomped under the feet of God's wrath. It says there, He cast our sins into the depths of the sea. It means he, Jesus came, He grabbed our sins and He tossed them into the depths of the sea. Not into the shallow end, but into the depths of the sea where you can find them no more. And let's be clear about that. The sin was laid on Jesus and Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath. This is good news. How far away? He came, He appeared to take away sins. How far away did Jesus take our sins? Psalm 103 verse 12 says this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Remember how serious sin was just a moment ago? Well, listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, He's removed them from you. How far is the east from the west? The west can never be in the east, and the east can never be in the west. And in the, and, and in the same way, when Jesus removes our sin by being the substitute lamb who was crucified in our place, He takes them away never to return again. No more sin. It was said by the prophet Isaiah, he said, the prophet Isaiah said, your sins will testify against you. The prophet Isaiah personified sin. He said, your sins are going to stand up and they're going to speak out against you. Can you hear their voice? Guilty, 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 dead, dead. Put them 
in hell, throw away the key, and then Christ Jesus, our champion, comes onto the scene. He takes the sin onto himself, dies for them, rises from the dead, takes them and casts them into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west. This is glorious news. Glorious news. Now those sins that testify against us are so far away that their voice can be heard no more. No more. Why did Jesus appear? Verse 8, second half of verse 8 says this. Not only to take away our sins. He didn't just appear to take away our sins, but what else? He appeared also to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy sins originated. He came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil. The devil. Martin Luther said this about the devil. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Did you ask who that might be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. If you wrote a book, if you wrote a book about the attributes of Jesus, would one of your chapter titles be Jesus the Destroyer? Well, it ought to be. Because He is Jesus the Destroyer who came, what is that? To destroy the works of the devil. He is the Destroyer. He has power and authority to slay the ruler of all the demonic forces on this earth in a moment. You remember what all the demons did when they saw Jesus when He walked on earth? They cowered before him in a corner and they covered themselves up and said, why did you come? Did you come to torment and destroy us before the time? They knew he was the destroyer. And Jesus has such power over that realm. Did you know that once he made a demon ask for God's help? It says it right here in Mark 5, 7. Listen to the demon's response to Jesus. I implore you by God. That you do not torment me. Jesus is so powerful. He just made a demon pray. I love how John later writes. You know, first We're reading 1 John. John's talking about Jesus who destroys the works of the wicked one. Destroys the works of the devil. I love how later on John wrote Revelation. He put some meat on it in chapter 20. Whenever he shows you the very end. The end of the evil one. Listen to Revelation chapter 20 verse 7. Listen. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive, to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they, Satan leading out this army, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And you think this battle is about to go down. You think it's about to be Lord of the Rings up in here, right? Where they're surrounded, good guys are surrounded by the bad guys. And then he just cuts it off. Listen to the next verse. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Done. Just like that. And the devil 
who deceived them was thrown. Who threw him there? The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And it wasn't a hard work for our king. I think it's interesting that the, the ultimate blow against Satan was in Jesus' death. Isn't that interesting? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 it says this. Through death, through death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Literally at his weakest moment is the ultimate destruction of Satan. What seems like the greatest tragedy and the enemy of God, the ultimate enemy of the church, gone. Dealt with. The war is won. Now let me give something a little bit more personal on that. Okay, So we can talk about he came to destroy the works of the devil from a larger scale like we're talking about. But I also want to get very personal about this in each Christian's life as well. I want you to think about this. Not only did he come to destroy the works of the devil on a large scale. But do you realize he came to destroy the works of the devil in all of his children's lives? That word for destroy in 1 John 3 8 can also be translated in other places loosed or loosened. Like, I'm not worthy to stoop down and loosen your sandal. Loosen. You see that? So he came to loosen, he came to undo something. Here we are, just, just satanically entangled in sin, and Christ comes to loosen you from it. This is what he does. And you shouldn't have a defeatist, if you're a Christian here, a defeatist mindset towards sin or about Satan. You should be encouraged by that. Now, last thing here, the, the, the difference between Jesus and Satan is infinitely immeasurable. Okay, the difference. I mean, you're, even, you're talking creator. Everything else is creation. He's created. He's a created being, and you got the Creator. He's, he's holy, holy, holy beyond what you can think. So it's infinitely immeasurable the difference between they're not just good and evil equal. It's nothing like that. It's nothing like that. But the difference that gets highlighted in these verses right here, in verse 5, it says this about Jesus In him there is no sin. He came to take away sin. And in Jesus there is no sin. He is the sinless, the righteous one. And here's what it says about Satan in verse 8. He has sinned from the beginning. And it compares the two. In him there is no sin, Jesus. And he has sinned from the beginning, Satan. And therefore, they're absolutely different. And so, I'll say this again. If you were of Jesus, the sinless, righteous one, it'll be evident, as we'll find out in just a moment. If you are of Satan, it'll be evident. It'll be obvious. Which brings us to the next point. The Christian's relationship to sin. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We were just commanded in verse 28. Last week as we read it together in verse 28. We were commanded. Abide in him lest you be ashamed and go to hell. 
Remain in Him. Abide in Him. And then now we're told that no one who truly abides in Him keeps on sinning. Let that sink in. No one who truly abides in Him keeps on sinning. Then it says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. So in other words, if you're continuing on in sin, not only do you not presently abide in Him, but you prove, you show yourself to have never in the past known Him or seen Him. Now what it says? The evidence that someone really has salvation the evidence that someone really has salvation is not by looking at some past experience that happened. The evidence that someone truly has salvation is their perseverance and holiness now. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, he said it like this. A man's life is a commentary on his inner, inward man. A man's life is a commentary to a man's life, the way he lives. It says something about what's going on on the inside, about the inward man, whether he is dead or he's alive, whether he's a false convert or a true convert. Another Puritan said this. He said, doing is the test of being. Doing is the test of being. Now notice he didn't say, do this so that you can be a Christian. He's not saying that. You're, you're worse. You're, all your works are like filthy rags. You can't save yourself. You need a Savior who laid down His life for you. But doing is the test of being. What you do says something about who you really are. But here's the question that verse 9 answers. Okay, we're still talking about the Christian's relationship with sin here. Here's the question that verse 9 answers. It answers this question. Why? I love this. We're going to dig in a little bit right here. Why? Why is it that a true convert will not continue in sin like this says? Why is it that a true convert will not keep on sinning? Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So here's three phrases. Really it's two because one of them is repeated. But three phrases... That show why a true convert will not and even cannot, it says, continue in sin. Number one is it says born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Born of God. Born of God. That's the new birth. You want the fancy term? It's regeneration. That's the word used over in Titus chapter 3 to talk about the new birth. The new life. The new creation is regeneration. Regeneration. This is the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. That's the first phrase that tells us why. It's being born again. This is the reason true convert can't continue on to sin. Second one is this. God's seed abides in him. It's the idea of, of the life that's in a seed. And it goes to the ground and something springs up. It's, it's the life of God. The nature of God is planted in this man. is united to Christ. Every Christian. This is an amazing thing. It's a miraculous thing that happens to Christians. It's the life of God in the soul of man. And then that last phrase repeats it. Born of God. He cannot keep on sinning 
Because he has been born of God. So every person who truly has faith in Christ in the room, every person, has been born of God. Think about what that means. You've been made alive like Lazarus come out of the tomb. Lazarus come forth and a dead man comes walking out of the tomb like that. Made alive. Born again. Made a new creation. Regenerated. This amazing miracle of regeneration that God does. Now, now I'm helped. I'm helped in understanding the doctrine of regeneration when I put it up next to justification. Okay? I'm helped when I do that. I want you to think about this. These two words, okay, these two fancy sounding words, justification and regeneration, they are both realities in the life of every true believer. In other words, there's no such thing as a justified person that's not regenerated. No such thing as a regenerated person that's not justified. These two go together in the life of every Christian, every true convert has justification and regeneration. And, and, and these two doctrines are put side by side in more than one place in the Bible. In the passage we're in today, the first paragraph I told you about, verse 4 through 7, it has a focus on justification. Remember it said righteous and it said lawlessness. It's this idea of coming before the law of God, before God the judge who declares something about you guilty or righteous, condemned or righteous. And then the second paragraph gives you more of the language of, of the devil or of God, child of the devil or child of God, born of God. So it's this idea of regeneration. You see the same thing in Titus chapter 3 when it says through the washing of regeneration having been justified through grace. These things go together. Justification and regeneration. Let me try to explain this because this helps me see the glory of regeneration and what he has done in the souls of his saints. Listen. Listen to this. Each one of us, think with me. Each one of us has a sin problem. <clears throat> each one of us. And our sin problem is external and it's internal. And by external, I mean it's on the record in heaven. Your sins are recorded before the judge of all the earth. That's the external problem of sin. Internal problem is this. You have a wicked heart. By default, without Christ, you have a wicked heart and you have sin. So you have an external problem, your record in heaven, and you have an internal problem, your own Wicked heart. And both of these must be dealt with. They have to be dealt with. Let's talk hypothetically for just a moment. Hypothetically, let's say that somehow your, your, your wicked heart could be made new somehow. But you still had that record in heaven that said you have sinned against your God. You'll go to heaven. Or let's flip it the other way. Let's say, so, let's say somehow your record could be wiped clean in heaven and no more sin on your record in heaven, but you come before God with a wicked heart. You see, your problem must be dealt with externally and internally. And this is true for every convert. This is true for every convert. Justification is true. That the Almighty God wiped the sins off the record and declared you righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. External problem, done. And for every true convert, you have regeneration, which is where God takes that old heart of stone and makes it new. He makes you a brand new creation, a new person, a new heart. So the in internal problem is done. In justification, God is the judge who declares you just in His sight on the basis of Christ's blood. 
But in regeneration, God is the surgeon who goes in and, and takes out the heart of stone and gives you a new heart, gives you a heart of flesh. It's a miracle that happens that God does. In justification, God gives you a new standing before Him. But in regeneration, God makes you a new person. In justification, God cancels your debt that is before Him. But in regeneration, God breaks the power of canceled sin. And justification, ju justification takes place in heaven in God's courtroom. But regeneration takes place on earth in man's heart. Justification gives hopeless people hope of an eternity. And regeneration gives helpless people help on this earth, even right now. Therefore, think about this. If every true Christian then is regenerated, and this is true, everybody that's truly had faith here, you've been born of God, born again. If every true Christian is regenerated, the life of God in him, awakened from the dead, imagine a miracle here, made a new creation, born of God. Do you think everything will continue on as normal in their life? John says he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So no, they can't say the same. This miracle of regeneration where God's life in the soul of man, this can't keep you the same. You can't stay the same after something like this. So, so I'm going to give you an Old Testament verse. Why is it that the true Christian cannot continue on in sin? Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. It tells us the Old Testament version of the new birth. The Old Testament version of regeneration. Listen to it. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Things change. Can you imagine trying to prick a stone? It just breaks your prick. You can't prick the stone. It feels nothing. But you prick a heart of flesh and it bleeds. It responds. Something changes here. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. Notice he doesn't say, I give you a new heart, I give you a new spirit, now obey me. He doesn't say that. He, he says that in another place, but right here he says, I give you a new heart and a new spirit and my, and my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my word. Not lawlessly, but to walk with God. The new birth is a miracle. I hope you see that. If you're here and you're in Christ, I hope you see the miracle. You think about it. Blind eyes now open to see the glory of Christ. Deaf ears now open to understand and marvel in God's word. This is what happens at the new birth. Just like a person being raised from the dead. When somebody's first born again, I love this, but they don't understand that this happens for them. You see somebody walking around just got saved and they're going, I don't know what happened, I just love him. That's what we're serving him. And I, like, I couldn't understand it. Now I understand the word. They don't know what happened to them. But that's what's happening. 
I just had a man just, just in the last few months tell me, listen, God is doing something in my life. I've read this book many times and I could not understand it. And I opened it and he said, it's like it's, it's, like it's in English. And I said, that's because God's opened your eyes. You see, it's a miracle regeneration that He does in the hearts of His saints. And you don't even know that it's happened to you. But this is the reason that those born of God cannot continue on the same. They cannot continue on in sin. Because of the work of God of regeneration. So if you get this miraculous nature of the new birth. If you get it. If you get the new birth in every believer. If you really get that. Then you'll understand 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God, regenerated, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, so that's the reason. But let's try to get a little more personal here, okay? Personal for us. Because that's what he does. Look at verse 7. The warning and the application. I want to get a little more personal. This warning and application. That's what he does. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Little children, let no one deceive you. This, this is the first command. The only command in this passage of Scripture from verse 4 to verse 10. And it really correlates with verse 10, right? Like I said earlier, let no one deceive you in verse 10. It is obvious, it is evident that the children of God, the children of the devil, those who do not practice righteousness are not of God. Don't let them deceive you. Now it's amazing to me. And I learned this as I studied this passage. How many times that phrase, do not be deceived. It's amazing how many times that phrase in the Bible is in relation to a warning about false conversion. Where you feel like your eternity is going to be okay. You feel like there's nothing wrong. I'm going to be alright after I die. But you're not okay. And over and over again in God's Word it says, do not be deceived about that. Let me show you some of that. Right here in our passage, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Who practices righteousness is righteous. It's not a new phenomenon, right? Like this has been happening since the first century. John's day, a church that John planted has been happening since here. But there's been false conversion. Those that think they're okay and they're not okay. Notice John's loving response. He's not talking to them out of spite. He's saying, little children. Little children. And in the same way for me, I speak out of love. If any, I, I speak these things. In hopes that God would awaken false converts in our midst. Not just to tell you that's who you are. I want you to be awakened by God. That your soul is in need of Christ. That you're not okay. If that applies to you. Let me give you some more. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's that phrase again. Paul apparently saw this in his ministry as well. Don't be deceived. Don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. You see the same thing in Galatians 5 in Paul's letter. Remember that? Galatians 5. When he gives you the works of the flesh. The, the, this is the commentary on the, the life of the works of the flesh. And he says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That verse has saved two false converts in my life. My best friend and my wife, 
Because they were awakened by God to that reality. That they were walking in false conversion. They saw it from Galatians 5, works of the flesh. Let me give you another one out of Galatians. Galatians 6, 7. Listen, same phrase. Do not be deceived. You think he's trying to tell us something? Don't be deceived. Listen, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Apparently this is one of Satan's major schemes. To make people feel okay with their eternity when they're not okay. Ephesians 5 says it like this. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. That is an idolater. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Listen to the phrase. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Listen. Worst thing I can think of. Not that I know. I don't know the hearts of men like God does. The worst thing I can think of. And this is why I prayed this earlier. That, that, a, that false converts, even in the room, would walk out laughing and playing over the, not even worried about their soul. And you have true converts in the room get, getting disturbed over, over their soul when they ought not. They ought to find comfort in Christ. So listen to this verse. I want you to be aware of how deceived you can really be. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Listen. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Did you know that? That you could be in this state. This is the state you could be in. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And yet you could think that you're in this state. Rich, prosper, and I mean nothing. Do you see how deceptive this could be? How could, how could this go together? And yet that's our warning over and over again. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Jesus said that there would be tares with the wheat, right? In my heart, the tares will be removed from the wheat. That's coming, no doubt. Jesus said it. The tares will be ripped out and be cast into eternal burns. Okay? But oh, the tares would be pulled out of the wheat now. When it doesn't result in eternal torment, but it results in eternal life as your soul is saved. For a living God to die for you. Now I'd be lying to you. You know with this passage in mind. As I study this passage. And, as, and even when I'm not thinking about these particular verses. I'd be lying if I didn't say. Excuse me. I'd be lying if I said I never got concerned about our church on this. I mean I do. I look around at brothers and sisters all around me. And I'm convinced. I'm convinced. That brothers and sisters are all around me right now who are in Christ Jesus. Who when you think about it, you know the gravity of sin. You know it. And this is what this ought to be doing. And you know the gravity of sin. And not only that, when you hear about Christ Jesus who came to take away your sins. And who came to destroy the works of the devil. Your heart loves him. And you don't continue on to sin. Yeah, absolutely you struggle like indifferent. No doubt that it's not perfectionism. But you don't continue on to sin like the world. You don't. And you find comfort in these things. And I'm convinced that the people of God, for the most part, are in this room. But I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't concerned that we don't have false prophets in our midst at times. Excuse me, not false, but false converts in our midst. 
And I say that because when I think about John, this is John, the apostle, dealing with this in a church in the first century. So all I know to do is blow the trumpet, put the warning before us, ask God to use it. I'm asking everybody in the room, please don't ignore this. Please don't let it go in one ear and one out the other. But answer the question, are you truly converted? Have you been regenerated? Or do you just carry the name of Christ? In closing, I want to let these, just let these God-breathe, there's a seriousness over the room, okay? Let these God-breathe phrases come down like hammers, okay? And I want you to pray with me that God will use these words. Listen to these God-breathe words from our passage. No one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And last one. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is... A heavy passage from your word, God, and I praise you for it, Lord. I praise you for it. And God, I pray for our church, Lord. God, let there be none from our midst left behind. Let there be none from among us, God, that don't make it to see you in eternal glory and joy. Let there be none among us, God. God, save souls, Lord. Awaken the dead. God, tear down the works of Satan in this room and, 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 and those entangled in sin, God. You're the one that looses them. I pray, God, that you would do that. God, the deception, you've warned us again and again not to be deceived. God, I pray that you would tear down the deceptions in this room and in our midst. And God, help each and every one of us see the glories, glories of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus, who you are and what you've done. Help us to see in Jesus' name.